0: Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM, as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So Tesla, we always hear about Tesla in the news, Tesla's released the truck, Tesla's done this. Well, we've got some Tesla news and Tesla patented laser beams that would allow you to clean a car's glass. The patent application is for pulse laser cleaning of debris accumulated on glass articles in vehicles and photovoltaic assemblies. It's quite the mouthful. Uh, in other words, these lasers will be used for both Tesla vehicles and Tesla solar panels. So these lasers, they can remove dirt, dust and, you know, that kind of a stuff. Things that would block the view of a camera or, you know, the sun to a solar panel. And there's a cool little illustration that shows you kind of how, how the windshield would work and they had it on a Model S Tesla and how the lasers would clean it and all of the cameras as well. So the painting also includes a way for the camera to detect dirt on the glass and camera lenses. The laser would then irradiate the dirt by burning it off. Uh, having the car kind of do self-clean its windows it would be very convenient for drivers and, you know, this would make such a difference to be honest, especially when it comes to a vehicle's design and drag coefficient. You know, take away the windscreen wiper and it could actually be safer. But how? How, how does that even work? Well, when it snows, you usually have your wipers on, and especially when you start and your car's been lying outside and it's been snowing, there's usually a little thin icy layer that's on your glass when the snow comes off. Well, that's kind of annoying, but with lasers, literally, you just easily remove it quickly. But here's another idea, let's really go off with this. What if you had those lasers and you managed to incorporate them with a convertible? You could just zap rain before it even comes down into your car's cabin. Now. That would be really cool. Imagine that you're driving through the rain and you've got the the roof down, you're getting the nice air. Maybe it would be cold though, but you're not getting wet. So I can see a lot of possibilities with this. And as Elon had stated after the Cybertruck launch, Tesla's now gonna be focusing on technology again and not so much on you know coming out with a new vehicle. It's all gonna be technology for 2020. You know, just this year, 2019, it's been a really big year for electric cars, but I thought this would be a kind of cool time to come up with a, a list of the best electric cars that are coming out. So first off, let's start with the BMW iX3. So it's going to be an SUV and it's going to look very similar to the standard X3, but it's going to be powered by two or a four motor powertrain. So BMW says it's going to offer 266 brake horsepower and it's going to have 249 miles of range from its 70 kilowatt hour battery when it goes on to sale in the second half of 2020. Then there's the Honda e and that's been designed to be a bit more of a toned down version of the urban EV that was kind of on show at one of the auto shows earlier this year. But it promises to have a range of 136 miles. And it's got a 35 kilowatt hour battery now keep in mind 136 miles it sounds like oh, that's not very much but if this has got the fast charging you don't really worry about that you literally go you charge maybe for 15 20 minutes and off you go so it's going to have rear wheel drive it's going to be a single motor city car and it's going to cost around 35,000 when it hits early summer 2020 so it's gonna have a choice between 134 brake horsepower or 152 and I think it's worth mentioning you know 35,000 that is now getting a little bit pricey and for that money, you could get a Model 3. So just putting that out there. Uh, there's also going to be a new Mini Electric Cooper. Now, this is different because like the Honda E, it's got very nice style to it, but it has the tech to back up behind it. So the Mini Cooper SE EV has a front-wheel drive electric motor that makes 181 horsepower and nearly 200 foot-pounds of torque. So the 0-60 to is 6.9 seconds, so it's not bad. And the top speed is 93 miles per hour. So Mini notes that it's going to start from $29,900. And after some federal tax incentives, some people might even be able to walk out brand new for $17,900. So this is a really, really good deal. And of course, you get the nice benefits like Hov Lane, instant Hov Lane access if you're just driving in your own. Uh, They didn't say how large the battery will be, but likely it's going to be around 200 miles. And Mini, they had an EV earlier, it was an electric kind of experimental model. Not anything too secretive, but this is a good deal. And I think if you can get all the incentives and walk out of the showroom for like under 18,000, that's a pretty good deal. Now, this next one, I personally think looks like something out of Tron. And you've probably heard of it, but Porsche is going to have their new... Taycan and it's going to be released in 2020 so you can actually go and buy it and the Taycan is technically already on sale but customers are not going to be taking delivery until the early weeks of next year so it certainly has the performance uh, between 520 brake horsepower and 751 brake horsepower depending on the model and the battery setup you choose Uh, and the combination between the twin motor and the battery setups it also gives the Taycan a 0-60 to 60 in about 2.8 seconds. Uh, and then obviously it goes to 4 seconds for the slower models. And the range is between 206 miles and 279. So although the range isn't up there with the Tesla, uh, one interesting thing with this car is it does have a gearbox. Nobody's talking about this, but the Taycan does have a gearbox. So it can achieve quite high speeds. And I believe if you were going at a higher speed and you had a drag race with the Tesla, you'd probably win so something there to think about now the next one is Rivian with their pickup truck so you know all eyes they've all been on Elon Musk's metal doorstop kind of Cybertruck thing but Rivian has the R1T and it looks like it's probably going to appeal to more of the kind of pickup truck market Uh, it looks more like a pickup truck and the Cybertruck looks like something of Blade Runner uh, that's slated to go into production late 2020 so it's going to be very similar around the Cybertruck and the R1T boasts ridiculous figures for a car that's not a Tesla. So it offers 750 brake horsepower and it has a sub 3 second to 0-60 time and it, yet yeah, it offers 400 miles of range from a 180 kilowatt hour battery. So this is very comparable to the Cybertruck and I would say especially with their partnership with Ford they might be using some of the technology between the two and keep in mind Ford invested quite a lot into Rivian so and they're coming out with their own F-150 electric pickup. so some of these figures ford might be coming out with similar ones so keep an eye out for that so of course there's also going to be the tesla model y and that's for 2020 and that will come in three configurations tailored for high performance or long range capabilities so the quickest dual motor one will be 0 to 60 in 3.5 seconds which is really good and the battery will last for around 300 miles uh, range, so it's quite far. And keep in mind the single motor, which is the slowest one, will only be two seconds longer to 60, so it's really not bad, but you'll be able to go 336 miles on a charge. It will arrive in 2020, and you can have it in seven seats, so it's a nice, practical SUV, and you've got that cool space-age Model 3 interior. Lastly, you're gonna not expect this, But we have General Motors with an electric SUV and you're probably thinking, What? I didn't hear about this. Well, yeah, General Motors has this Chevy Menlo EV. And I'll be very honest, I'm not joking with this. I think it looks really nice. It looks fantastic. Uh, I really do dislike GM's vehicles, Uh, they usually have no style, or, you know, it's style here but then it's messed up elsewhere, so. However, the Chevy Menlo really does look good. So, basically, it's got a bit of Camaro style design language at the rear taillights, and a lot of modern Cadillac up at the front, so it's a really good mix. And what are the specs? Well, it has a modest 148 horsepower motor, but remember... EVs, they have instant torque, so about 150, it's okay. You'll feel like you've got a lot more than that. And a range of around, hopefully 200 miles. So the pricing wasn't released. However, if we take the Chevy Bolt into consideration and they've had that out and that obviously pulled back some of its uh, research costs, it should be around $40,000. So very comparable to the Mach-E that Ford's selling. And although, you know, you're thinking, well, the specs, they're not that great. You really, the design, it really can forgive it. It looks pretty good. Now, however, there's a catch, and it's a really big one. You can't buy one of these in the US. GM, the company bailed out by American taxpayers, is only making this EV available for the Chinese market. Typical, right? Now, Tesla with the Cybertruck, uh, Elon actually over Twitter responded to some numbers suggesting that the Cybertruck could get a really good drag coefficient. Uh, which was as low as 0.3 which is really really impressive for a pickup truck. Musk shared that number and he says that you know the truck could reach as low as 0.3 with enough engineering effort and that the total drag coefficient uh, coming off the car you need to kind of multiply it by the CD of the frontal area of the vehicle. This tells you how much force is acting upon the car in forward motion which is how much energy gets lost aerodynamically. So. Let's just take a moment to to take this in. CD, or drag coefficient, it's not just a measure of how well is a car engineered or designed. Uh, High CD isn't necessarily bad, it's just for efficiency. And you know, some of the least aerodynamic cars are also the fastest. Uh, Formula 1 cars often have drag coefficients of 0.7 and 1.0, which is crazy but this is because they purposefully push air up to create downforce, uh, which increases grip and allows them to go around corners way faster. Uh, But for road cars, you know, we're interested in efficiency, especially when you're doing an electric car. The higher the efficiency, the further or the longer you can drive, and you want to have the lowest drag coefficient you can get most of the time. So to compare to other cars in the range of 03 uh, the Tesla Cybertruck has aerodynamics similar to a lot of sleek sports cars and you wouldn't think that because it looks like a brake. Uh, on the worst side let's just compare some of the real brakes like a Hummer H2 that has a drag coefficient of 0.57 or the VW Westphalia Camper which has a 0.51 drag coefficient. Uh, some of the more efficient cars today like the Honda Civic they're kind of like 0.36 or a 0.30 a range of drag coefficient and depending on your model uh, a lot of sports cars have drag coefficient of .30 or .29 like Corvettes and you know the Mustang but you've got some SUVs which are quite a lot larger like Toyotas and all that kind of stuff at .35 uh, the RAV4 at .31 so anything below .30 uh, you start seeing more modern vehicles and the ones that are specifically engineered to be hyper efficient uh, like Tesla's other vehicles. You know, the Model X has a drag coefficient of 0.25, which is very low. Uh, the Model S is 0.24, and the Model 3 currently is the lowest at 0.23. So, various hybrids like the Prius and the Ionic and the Insight, they're all pretty low. But the all time winners are the ones designed in a teardrop shape. Uh, so, the GM EV1 and actually more recently there was the VW XL one and they have a drag coefficient of 0.19 and you might say 0.19, that's not that far off 0.23 for the Model 3, but each 0.01 is massive. That is a big, big difference. Uh, There's a huge difference between 0.19 and 0.23. So if we look at other trucks though, uh, now comparing to the Cybertruck, Uh, Typically, they're in the high range of 0.3-something. You know, like the Toyota Tacoma is 0.39. So the Cybertruck does seem to be really aerodynamically efficient, uh, especially compared to the competition. That said, Tesla has a lot to do. Uh, The design's not finalized, and the car does have some pain points. So that A-pillar, it's very rough. And the large front bumpers and the peak at the top of the roof It seems like that most likely those are going to kind of be dealt with but it definitely shows that there's a more efficient pickup truck design starting to come into that market. And how do we know that? Well let's just see, let's have a look at the Cybertruck orders and what's this? Elon tweets 250,000 indicating that based on the previous Twitter posts there's been 250,000 orders. Uh, That's incredible and probably, you know, that was quite an old tweet. It's probably closer to 300,000 by now and this just proves something. People don't want the same old boring curvy designs like the stuff GM makes. They want something new, something that pushes us into 2020 with a real move into the future. Uh, So watch this space because similar trends will happen and it's not particularly just going to be in the car industry. So BMW believes uh, it's time And hybrids, they shouldn't really live anymore. Uh, They've rang the death bell for the i3 Rex model. The automaker believes the i3 Rex, quote, has no future. And those were the words of Jan Friedman, who is BMW's manager of connected e-mobility. In a discussion about battery technology at the auto show, Friedman declared that the lithium-ion technology is advanced enough to leave range extenders totally out of electric cars. Uh, Although they're still in their infancy overall, electric car charging networks have grown in recent years and it helps make it easier to ensure a nearly full charge too. The i3 Rex, which has been discontinued in Europe, uh, but BMW believes in the past that they've alluded to range extending models and they kind of still serve a purpose in some markets like in the US, but it's not going to be discontinued just yet. Uh, The German automaker made it very clear that they're still going to make it, they're just not going to invest into the technology anymore. The regular BMW i3 is actually more capable. It's far more capable than when it originally came out. Uh, Today, it packs a 42.2 kilowatt hour lithium-ion battery, and that gets you about 153 miles of range, totally electric. When the i3 came out back in 2014, the battery was half as powerful. You only got a range of 81 miles. So, the Rex model, it was kind of the alternative, Uh, you had a combined range of, you know, gas and electric of 150, but now that you're getting 153 just from battery, that kind of makes this tiny two-cylinder engine not really making any sense. BMW has reportedly affirmed that the i3 Rex will be around for the foreseeable future, but don't expect any major improvements for that model. Uh, Instead, the i3 should probably receive another battery update in the short term and that will be kind of cool to see because BMW is going full on with electric cars, so that's their priority now. So we keep hearing a lot about these batteries and, you know, Tesla's Model 3, you've got the lithium-ion battery pack and that has an estimated 168 watt-hours per kilogram and it's important because this energy density, uh, energy per weight ratio is for electric cars, but more importantly... It's for electric aircraft, this is critical. Now, Oxus Energy of Abingdon in the UK says that they've got a battery based on lithium sulfur chemistry, and it can greatly increase the ratio of kind of how much power you can get into a dense space, which, like we just said, is really important for an electric aircraft. Specifically, a plane built by Bi Aerospace. So the two companies said in a statement that they were beginning a one-year joint project to demonstrate the feasibility. They said that the Oxus battery would provide an excess of 500 watt-hours uh, per kilogram, which is a number that appears to apply to individual cells rather than the whole battery pack. So that per-cell figure uh, may be compared directly to the record-breaking density of 260 watt-hours per kilogram that Bi cited for the batteries in the planes back in 2017. This per-cell reduction will cut the total system weight in half. Uh, enough to extend a flying range up to, you know, 50 to 100%, at least in smaller planes, which by Aerospace has specialised in so far, and the lithium sulphur wins the day. Uh, bigger planes probably will come down the road pretty soon. Ho Hempson-Jones, who's the chief executive of Oxus, said in a statement, We believe this to be the first phase of the electrification of commercial aircraft and will ultimately form the basis for the electrification of air taxis with the additional requirements for regional aircraft. One reason why lithium sulfur batteries have been on the sidelines for so long is their short life. Uh, They've got quite a fast degradation due to the cathode during the charge-discharge cycle. Uh, Oxus expects that the batteries will be able to last 500 cycles within the next two years, and that's about on par with today's lithium-ion batteries. Another reason is safety. Lithium-sulfur batteries have been prone to overheating. Uh, Oxus says that the design incorporates a ceramic lithium-sulfide as a passive layer which blocks the flow of electricity, both to prevent sudden discharge and more insidious leakage that can cause lithium-ion batteries to slowly lose capacity even while just sitting on the shelf. So Oxus uses a non-flammable electrolyte. Presumably there's more to Oxus's secret sauce uh, than just the two elements, but the company says it has 186 patents with 87 more pending. So with this kind of thing, especially when it's this early in the game, having as many patents, it kind of adds up. And you've seen already Boeing, they invested in Virgin Galactic for some of their tech. You might see something similar happening with this company. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. And the rest of cryptocurrency in general has been really struggling to find its place. Uh, However, Bitcoin's price, it climbed this year Uh, and that was largely due to the interest from technology giants like Apple and even Jack Dorsey who's the CEO of Twitter. Now, earlier this year, Jack Dorsey actually launched a crypto team over his one of his companies called Square. And let me fill you in with Square is kind of like this mobile online payments kind of thing. So it's interesting, though, that he's got a crypto team starting there. He also toured Africa and he said, I'm sad to be leaving the continent for now. And over on Twitter, he said, Africa will define the future, especially the Bitcoin one. Not sure where but I'll be living here for three to six months, mid-2020. While in Nigeria, Dorsey attended a lot of these Bitcoin meetups and met with Bitcoin business owners over in Ghana. And over the last two years, three of the top five countries searching for Bitcoin uh, on Google have been in Africa. So developing regions and countries have long been expected to benefit the most from Bitcoin, uh, cryptocurrency and just the underlying blockchain technology as a whole. And Nate Hindman, who's the head of growth at Bancor, said in emerging markets like Africa, the shallow reach of traditional money systems means there's less resistance to new financial technology. So major Bitcoin and cryptocurrency companies from global exchanges like Binance, Belfrix, Paxful, and to the crypto group Bancor, they're all expanding over into Africa. And BitHub, which was founded back in 2015 by Kenyan tech entrepreneur John Kernja, is an incubation hub for internet based currencies. Uh, He said for young people, it's an opportunity for them to learn about cryptocurrencies, potentially helping them access global markets. And even this is most interesting Mark Zuckerberg is also steering his social media giant. Facebook. You may have heard of Facebook, you know. Uh, They're moving over towards payments through his cryptocurrency. It's called Libra, and it's designed to kind of bring modern payments to millions of people who are, you know, unbanked people around the world. Uh, Zuckerberg's plan for commercial Bitcoin rivals, it's had a lot of issues, especially with regulators and world leaders, uh, just recently, there was a hearing on this, and Zuckerberg was kind of answering questions, and he was really getting deep fried in some of these questions about how is it going to work, are people going to use it for nefarious purposes? But hopefully, that project's going to launch next year. So, why is this all important, though? Well, it, it seems like cryptocurrency is the way that everybody's kind of leaning towards, and more and more we're moving into this cashless society. And if you think about it, it sounds like something out for sci-fi film, but it really isn't. If you think about how you buy stuff, especially like, take for example, right, you're going to Walmart and the chances are you're using a credit card. Uh, Cryptocurrency, it's very similar, okay? Instead of using dollars, you're just using a different number or a different currency. It's just the same principle, but a good argument is, why should we stop using dollars then? You know, Just make an app or something, and while that's true, Bitcoin offers something that currency doesn't. Speed. And once you own a Bitcoin, you don't have to deal really with any bank. But what's really nice is with cryptocurrency, there's lots of different types. So if you wanted to, you could transfer your Bitcoin into a different type of cryptocurrency and literally transfer it instantly. There's no waiting three to four business days with normal currency. It's just so much quicker with crypto. Because you're probably like me. When you go to like a hotel or you go somewhere and they hold a deposit, Say you go to Enterprise Rent-A-Car, they put a deposit on your card and it's like, okay, we've released it, but you know, your bank takes a little bit of time to get back to you. That doesn't happen. If you had a Bitcoin account and hopefully in the future, Enterprise or whatever these companies, they accept it, it would be instant. It would be back into your wallet. But getting back to that original point, you know, going forward into 2020, crypto is going to begin to again become... Something that's back in the public view. So there's really no denying that. And when you see these top guys in tech uh, starting to look into this again, that means it really is just around the corner. Now, here's something you may have heard of as well. It's called deepfakes. Now, there's been there's a lot of controversy around this because it can be used manipulatively. Well, over in China, there's been a newly released government policy, and that's designed to prevent the spread of fake news and misleading videos created by using artificial intelligence, also known as deepfakes. So the new rule bans the publishing of false information or deepfakes without proper disclosure that the post in question was created with AI or VR technology. Failure to disclose is now a criminal offence. So this, believe it or not, this is actually going to go into effect in China on January 1st, 2020. So just starting off into the 2020s. And it will be enforced by the Cyberspace Administration of China, which is probably the coolest sounding agency ever. Uh, So they said with, quote, the adoption of new technologies such as deepfakes and online video and audio industries, there have been risks in such content to disrupt social order and violate people's interests creating political risks and bringing massive negative impact to national security and social stability. Sounds like something out of Black Mirror. Well, China's stance, it's a broad one, and it appears that the Chinese government is reserving the right to prosecute both users and image and video hosting services for failing to abide by the rules. You might think that's not like the US, is it? But it really does mirror similar legislation that was introduced into the US that was designed to combat deep fakes. Literally last week, California became the first U.S. state to criminalize the use of deep fakes in political campaign promotion and advertising. Uh, the law called AB 730, and it was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Imagery or video that gives a false or damaging impression of a politician's words or actions. So, California's law does not use the word deep fake but it's pretty clear, you know, it's AI-manufactured fakes. And the primary culprit of that is deep fakes, which use videos in a misleading, edited way to kind of sometimes frame people in a negative light. So California's approach interestingly excludes news media, hmm, interesting, as well as parody and satire. So that's pretty good with the sole aim for now just to prevent the potential damage that deep fake ads could cause when used in the run-up to an election. The law applies to candidates within 60 days of an election and it's designed to expire by 2023 unless explicitly reenacted. So Congress also is in the process of analyzing the potential harm of deepfakes and how best combat their influence in the upcoming 2020 presidential election, which is literally just around the corner. So the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing on the subject after convening a panel of experts from university and think tanks to come up with a deep fake strategy with regards to election integrity and security. There's also a number of pieces of legislation moving through Congress that at the moment would require special watermarks over to disclose the fact that, you know, you're watching something that's fake and, you know, it's not real but also they're looking at the criminalization and creation of distribution of such videos. So this is getting a little bit more into that kind of Chinese law enforcement. On the US side, Facebook and Twitter, they're currently in the process of creating better tools for kind of detecting these deep fakes and helping reduce the spread of those videos and imagery across all respective platforms. Now, Twitter this month said it was drafting a deepfake policy after a number of high-profile incidents, including a misleading edited video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi going viral. That highlighted how vulnerable the company's platform is to this type of misinformation. Facebook, which also faced criticism to try and stop this Pelosi video from spreading, and they failed, they've also been developing technology to detect deepfakes, but it notably has refused to remove such videos in the line of its policy on freedom of speech. So similarly, Facebook has come under fire for allowing politicians to knowingly lie in advertisements, opening to the future possibility of deep fake political ads in the absence of federal legislation. CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that the company does not want to regulate freedom of speech on the platform, and Twitter took an opposite stance by saying that They're outright just going to ban anything that is political advertising. So that's the question you've got to ask yourself. What's going to happen? Are we going to have these private companies saying, you know what, we're going to ban it? Or are you going to have government step in and say, you know what, we're going to ban it now. But probably the best thing is not to ban it, but to have a law that says, you know, you must state, is this a deep fake or not? And then people can still have their freedom of speech. There's just so much good that can come out of this technology. Hopefully it doesn't just get totally banned. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Traynor and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So Luma's Global BV, which is a Dutch company specialising in off-grid solar power, plans to light up over a million Nigerian households by 2025 as it expands into Africa's most populous city of more than 200 million, Where there is only 60% that have access to electricity. The Nigerian government announced last week that it awarded a share of a 75 million World Bank funded grant to Lumos to support its business in the West Africa nation as part of efforts to back quick and simple solutions to help the country's energy deficit due to an unreliable electricity grid. Lumos CEO Alistair Gordon said, you know the market is enormous, Having some assistance with that significant capex outlay and investment through these sorts of grants is a real help. Lumix, which has already fitted more than 100,000 homes around in Nigeria, will receive a fee for each new installation from the Rural Electrification Agency, known as REA. The Amsterdam-based company isn't only targeting rural areas uh, that aren't served to the electricity grid, but they're also doing towns and cities where power outages are frequent, and you know households they rely on it or at least partly they have to rely on generators to kind of keep their power up. So Loomis is offering solar panels and batteries that enable families to spend a flat fee of around $15 per month rather than three or four times that for kerosene or diesel. The company also expects to sign up of more than a million households in the middle of the next decade but you probably thought what was that monthly fee? Well, Loomis distributes its equipment and services in Nigeria through the stores of the MTN Group, which is the biggest mobile telecommunications operator in the country, charging a $40 joining fee and a $12 installation. Customers then pay the monthly fee with their mobile phones or the service and the system just shut off. So the Loomis unit runs appliances like lights, fans, mobile phones and televisions, Uh, And in some cases, it can run like a whole small business, uh, sewing machines and hair clippers. So the grant for standalone systems is part of the 350 million raised by Nigeria from the World Bank to increase electrification rates in rural areas. The largest proportion of the 150 million is dedicated to developing solar mini grids. Gordon said in a quote, The REA knows that solar is the quickest way that everyone is going to be able to get power fast and easy. Now, we've been talking a lot about energy, but what's the opinion on it? Well, Pew Research surveyed 3,627 people between October 1st and October 13th, 2019, and they had results in a PDF that showed about 92% of Americans were in favour of expanding solar farms. So, this value, you know, this increased 3%. Uh, 10 million people from two surveys earlier Uh, showed that there was kind of an 89% approval, uh, and that was back in 2016-2018. So 2019 looked like it was pretty positive. Uh, Solar power, with its 92% value, had the highest answer rate of any other climate or energy environmental action. Expanding wind farms also polled very highly at 85%, and the nation's largest CO2-free energy source, which is nuclear-powered, followed a split, you know, it was at 49%. So both these energy sources, they've increased in public opinion quite a lot since May, uh, back in earlier this year, with wind up about 2% and nuclear even went a little bit up. It was originally 6% less. When people were asked separately in a randomized manner, you know, what what action do we should we do? Uh, should we develop alternatives or expand fossil fuels? 77% of people said the former. supported the latter. So, the country was roughly split in three ways when asked about whether or not the government policies should limit climate change effects, Uh, would it help, would it hurt, or would it have no effect, Uh, and one might argue that two-thirds of the country would be okay with the sensible climate action uh, instead of this elaborate, too forceful, and people then get put off. So 41% of respondents thought that the US was feeling the effects of climate change and as a quote, a great deal, Uh, 35% feeling quote, some and 15% not so much. So this is going to be a really cool talking point, especially with these elections coming up. So now we know from the Pew Research what people are kind of looking for and kind of what they're thinking now reasonably, this is kind of this works, this doesn't work. How's that going to affect the elections? Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Now, here's a question nobody really talks about. How do we actually recycle renewable energy sources? So the solar economy continues its dramatic growth uh, with over half a terawatt already installed around the world, generating clean energy. But what happens to that photovoltaic or the PV module at the end of their life? With lifespans measured in decades, PV waste uh, disposable it might seem to be a bit of an issue in the future. Yet the industry ships millions of tons every year, and that number is only going to continue to grow as we've seen. So total e-waste, including computers, televisions, mobile phones, is around 45 metric tons annually. Uh, by comparison, PV waste in 2015 will be twice that figure. So motivated by concerns about exposure to toxic materials, uh, increased disposal costs and overcapacity at landfills managed by underfunded local governments, uh, researchers are starting to explore global solar waste management solutions based on concepts like the circular economy. At the same time, the demand for sand and rare and precious metals, they continue to rise. While supplying only about 1% of global electricity, photovoltaics already rely on 40% of global tellurium supply, 15% of silver supply and a large proportion of semiconductor quality quartz supply, and a smaller but more important segment of idium, zinc, tin and gallium supplies. Closing the loop on these metals and embracing a circular economy concept would be critical to the industry's future. The leading policy with a proven record of successful end-of-life product management is extended producer responsibility, or EPR. About a decade ago, European PV manufacturers participated in a voluntary EPR system, which was the PV cycle. In 2014, when the industry came under the Waste, Electronics and Electrical, or the WEEE directive, all the manufacturers were required to participate in an EPR program. And since 2009, the EPR program run by PV Cycle has recycled over 30,000 metric tons of PV and with an establishment of collection centers has driven the market in second life PV modules. But let's take a moment. Uh, You know, in the US, there's no federal e-waste regulation to motivate PV waste collection and recycling, so federal law only requires a special management of PV modules that are characterized as hazardous waste under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Some PV modules are considered hazardous waste because of lead, cadmium, and others not considered hazardous waste at all. So since it's not possible to tell whether a PV module is hazardous or not, just from visual inspection, many argue it's simpler to just collect all PV modules. All of these trends, they all point to a need for greener product design and a supply chain responsible for ensuring sustainability. So solar energy is critical to addressing both climate change and energy poverty. So embracing a circular economy approach to PV waste and materials is urgently needed. And we need to kind of see how, how what's going to be the solution, how's it going to come about. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen, it's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. When particles hit the Earth during solar storms, they make some kind of weird music and it comes through a magnetic field. So the new data shows that the Earth's magnetic field generates waves after being bombarded by solar wind, energetic particles, and they flow from the sun's atmosphere and out into the solar system. To turn these electromagnetic waves into an audible song, researchers transform the wave frequencies into sound waves and, you know, the result? well. I'll let you decide. So yeah, not really what I was expecting either. Uh, And the ESA, the European Space Agency, said it was more like the sounds of a science fiction movie than a natural phenomenon. Researchers say that these electromagnetic waves are usually humming in the Earth's magnetosphere at a relatively stable frequency, but then swarms of energetic particles from the Sun hit our planet's protective magnetic shell and it bursts into a song of many frequencies. Uh, The ESA officials say in quiet times when there's no solar storm striking the Earth, the song is lower in pitch and less complex with one single frequency dominating the oscillation. Also, that when solar storms hit, the frequency of the wave is roughly doubled, uh, with the precise frequency resulting in waves being dependent on the strength of the magnetic field in the storm. Uh, The cool celestial tunes uh, coming from the ESA clusters mission, uh, it's actually, let's talk a little bit about this. So the spacecraft, it's a set, and it studies the Earth's magnetic field and how it interacts with solar particles. Uh, and the team led by Lucille Turk at the University of Helsinki generated the music from portions of nearly two decades of cluster observations. Uh, also the data that was collected during the sixth observation periods between 2001 and 2005, that's when the cluster flew through a region of the magnetic field called the foreshock where particles first hit the magnetic field during solar storms. Uh, besides all of the collecting of data that generated some of the really awesome sounds, uh, the cluster also revealed that the generated waves in Earth's magnetic field are more complex than scientists had previously thought. Uh, Observations suggest that the single dominant wave frequency that permeates the magnetic field during the quiet periods of the solar activity is not only doubled in frequency, but it can also divide into several different frequencies when a solar storm breaks against the foreshock. Turk said, our study reveals that solar storms profoundly modify the foreshock region. And the foreshock changes that could affect space weather related magnetic activity uh, closer to Earth's surface. So researchers, they're still trying to understand how exactly, you know, what's happening when a solar storm bombards the foreshock. But they usually know that it generates magnetic waves that can't go back into space. But why not? Well, it's all because the solar storm is pushing them towards our planet in a process that usually only takes about 10 minutes, so it's very quick uh, when you take into consideration all of the things that are going on. Uh, the ESA said, before they reach our atmosphere, the waves encounter another barrier, the bow shock, which in the magnetic region of space, uh, that slows down solar wind particles before they collide with Earth's magnetic field. The collision of the magnetic field waves modifies the behavior of the bow shock, possibly changing the way it processes the energy of incoming solar storms. The ESA then followed up by saying, Behind the bow shock, the magnetic fields of the Earth start to resonate at a frequency of the waves, and this contributes to transmit the magnetic disturbance all the way to the ground. So overall, researchers, they hope to better understand how space weather from the sun affects our planet. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of record instances of satellites, radios, uh, more than even 150 years ago, uh, telegraph disruptions due to intense solar activity. So space researchers, they really want to closely study the sun and all of the patterns and activity and do their utmost to try and keep our planet's infrastructure safe. And let me tell you a little bit about this, because why, why is this so important? Well, solar flares and winds uh, from the sun not only affect weather patterns, but they can also show up possible areas for natural disasters. They can also knock out all our electronics in one, whole, one big massive wipe. Think I'm crazy? Well, let's take a trip back in time. Let's go back to 1859. And it's really not that long ago if you think about it in reality. Uh, well, something called the Carrington event happened and it was a very powerful geomagnetic storm, and it was during the solar cycle 10, which was between 1855 and 1867. A solar coronal mass ejection, or a CME, hit Earth's magnetosphere and induced one of the largest geomagnetic storms on record. The storm caused strong aural displays and wrought havoc with the telegraph systems. Now, keep in mind, this happened in 1859. A solar storm happening like that today? That would cause widespread failure. I mean, that would that could even collapse uh, our modern society. You'd have widespread electrical failures, blackouts, uh, and then you've got damage due to extended outages of the electrical grid. Uh, the solar storm, there was actually one back in 2012, and it was a similar magnitude, but luckily it passed the Earth's uh, orbit without striking the planet, and it missed by, I think it was like nine days. So learning more about these types of events it's going to drastically improve our ability to predict how and, you know, what What do we do to kind of prepare for such a big incoming threat. But we've got some NASA news that we have to talk about. And as NASA. They're getting ready. We've always heard this. Um, we're going to the moon 2024. Uh, the space agency is currently working on designs for a lunar lander and they had some really nice uh, futuristic designs that they shared. So just they were showing off some concept art uh, for their landers and it was going to use the top tier technology in order to not only land on Earth's moon, but also get all the data they collected. So Logan Kennedy, who's the project's lead systems engineer, said this lander was designed for simplicity in mind to deliver a 300 kilogram rover to the lunar pole. We used a single string systems minimal mechanisms, and existing technology to reduce complexity. Through advancements in precision landing, we plan to avoid hazards and to benefit the rover's operations. We will keep the rover alive through transit and landing so that it can do its job. As lunar landers grow to accommodate larger payloads, simple but high-performing landers with continuous payload volume will be needed. Uh, he also added the concept developed by a diverse team of people over many years meets those needs. Uh, we hope that other lander designers can benefit from our work. So this lunar concept its the latest in the line of designs as NASA seeks input from the public and private partners as it makes headway for its upcoming Artemis Moon program. So earlier this month, uh, Boeing showed off its crewed moon lander idea, uh, one it says will require the fewest steps to get to the moon. And, you know, earlier this month, NASA picked SpaceX's Starship, Blue Origin's Blue Moon, and three other commercial lunar lander companies to bid on proposals for this Artemis program. So, but we've got to take into consideration, after Apollo 11, okay, you had, you know, Neil Armstrong, you had Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon, you know, only 10 more men, uh, they were all Americans, walked on the lunar surface. The last NASA astronaut set foot on the moon, was back on Apollo 17, and that was mission commander Gene Cernan on December 14th, 1972. So it's high time we get back and seeing these lunar concepts, and now we know obviously the private industry are on board. This is going to be kind of interesting to see, especially starting in 2020. Now, European nations, they've given the green light, and it's a significant green light because they've boosted the funding for their European Space Agency. And basically what that means is all the future programs and all the proposals that were laid out got approved. So it was a more than 20% rise in the ESA's three year budget. And that's the largest boost the agency has ever seen in the last 25 years. Uh, It's one that's gonna allow it to concurrently run two major orbiting observatories to look at X-rays and gravitational waves, uh, launch a mission to Uranus and Neptune Uh, join NASA in returning samples from Mars, and develop a reusable vehicle to take astronauts to and from space. So ESA's chief, Jan Warner, said, this reaffirms our common ambition for Europe. And in the past, it's always, you know, programs get cancelled, or, you know, they get put back on the back burner, and we'll kind of deal with that later type of deal. But for this proposal, the agency, as Warner said, spent two years developing proposals and lobbying members for support. Uh, You know, it was funny, they joked, NASA has one government, we have 22. But as the ministers went through the 47 page list of programs, it became clear that not a single program had to stop. All in all, the ministers approved the budget, and it was 12.5 billion euros, and that's for the next three years, uh, a rise of 20% over 10.3 billion euros from the budget set in 2016. And Warner, quote, said, It was a surprise, more than I proposed, which is a very good message. Ministers also agreed an additional 1.9 billion euros to help with ESA's mandatory programs, which all members must contribute to in line with their gross domestic product to continue for two years if for some reason the next ministerial is delayed. One of those mandatory programs is science. And Warner said, you know, science is the backbone of what we do here at the ESA. With a stagnant budget over the last couple of decades and you know a couple of years, uh, the rate of mission launches it had slowed and the European space scientists were anxious for more. Uh, one goal was to bring forward the 2034 launch date of the laser interferometer space antennae, which for short is LISA. Uh, it's a gravitational wave detector. And that was to run at the same time as the Athena X-ray Observatory because they share some of the same targets such as black holes. In the ESA they need to move really quick to join NASA because this probe is going to go off to Uranus and Neptune and you know you've got to wait for the alignment of planets so it's a required launch date of 2030. So the science budget will now ramp up to $576 million per year by 2022. ESA's Earth Observation Program was another big winner. It received $1.8 billion over the next three years, so 29% more than what was originally requested. Uh, the program develops its own scientific satellites called the Earth Explorers, and it also builds up commercial monitoring satellites called Centiels for the European Union under the Copernicus Programme. European Space Agency's Earth Observation Director Joseph Asbacher told the press conference that he had a very concrete list of how the money will be used. Top of the list is building more satellites to measure atmospheric carbon dioxide, to contribute components to the NASA-led Lunar Gateway Space Station, and to start building parts for the NASA ESA Mars Sample Return mission. Is also adopted a French-German proposal for a lunar lander and rover, and Warner says that this is a good example of the ESA's Moon Village concept, a lunar outpost that, with various space agencies and commercial enterprises, can contribute to the idea that various space agencies and commercial enterprises can contribute to. He said the idea is five years old now and finally we're coming to concrete actions in transportation esa will move ahead with upgraded versions of its larger array and medium vega launchers uh, and the agency will begin to develop its own capsule for transporting astronauts. Even though 80% of the support for the so called Space Rider, which is a reusable rocket system, comes from one member state, which is Italy, Werner said most importantly, Space Rider will fly and land. So that's setting up the ESA with a lot of funding going into 2020. So SpaceX did a static test of the Falcon 9 booster at the Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral, and this is all ahead of its planned launch on December 4th. So at around 5.30pm EST, the Falcon 9 rocket roared to life, uh, smoke billowed from its engines, and it was all during this pre-flight test. Uh, The brief ignition, known as a static fire test, Uh, It's standard, as part of pre-launch procedures, and it's one of the last major milestones before liftoff. So during the test, the rocket was held down to the pad, while its nine first-stage engines are briefly fired, allowing the crew to ensure that all engines are working properly and that the rocket is ready to fly. Now shortly after the test, SpaceX uh, tweeted that the static test fire was a success, and that the company's plan to launch on December 4th. After launch, Dragon is expected to deliver its cargo of more than £5,700 and that's research gear and other supplies to the International Space Station on December 7th. It should return back to Earth packed with experiments, uh, results and all that kind of stuff in a few weeks time. The last time that the SpaceX Falcon 9 took to the skies was on November 11th, when a booster carried a fresh batch of 60 Starlink satellites to orbit before returning and landing on a floating platform out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, in addition to crew supplies, uh, tucked inside the Dragon is a host of scientific research that's going to kind of support many experiments uh, during the Expeditions 61 and 62. The star for this upcoming launch will be the new shiny. Falcon 9 booster which is a big contrast to the previous mission that featured a veteran booster uh, that was conducting you know it was on its fourth flight Uh, so this is a first for SpaceX and approximately eight minutes after launch SpaceX intends to land the rocket the first stage on one of the company's two drone ships which is called of course I still love you Uh, and that's going to be stationed uh, similar to the Starlink launch out in the Atlantic Ocean. So unlike the Falcon 9, the big booster, uh, the Dragon, the little capsule thing at the top, has flown before. Uh, The CRS-19, this is going to be the spacecraft's third trip to the space station. Uh, The Dragon previously delivered supplies for CRS-4 in 2014 and CRS-11 in 2017. But let's move on and talk about SpaceX's competitor Blue Origin. Because they're starting to rapidly uh, expand on several fronts, uh, especially their headquarters, which is in the south of Seattle, to a new beachhead in the Los Angeles area. Just three and a half years ago, Blue Origin's workforce was about 600 employees, and Bezos back then said his 300,000 square foot office and production facility in Kent was busting out of the seams. So now the employee count is around about two and a half thousand. It's heading towards three and a half thousand for the next year. And according to the report from Bangkok Space Conference, quoting Clay Maury, who's Blue Origin's Vice President for Global Sales, He said, to be sure, there are a lot of places to put those employees, including a rocket test facility nestled amid 165,000 acres of Bezos-owned ranch land in West Texas and a 750,000-square-foot New Glenn rocket factory in Florida, plus a leased complex and a servicing centre, a 200,000-square-foot BE-4 engine factory in Alabama and a business office over in Arlington. So, now you can add Los Angeles to the list. Uh, Blue Origin ramping up a California propulsion system design and development operation, uh, especially in the LA area, and that's to support the Kent, Texas and Alabama teams. And for what it's worth, SpaceX's headquarters is located in Hawthorne, California, just a few blocks beyond Los Angeles' city limits. Virgin Galactic is headed down the road, you know, over in Long Beach, California. And Relativity Space, which was founded in Seattle by Blue Origin alumni, now has its home base near Los Angeles International Airport. But one thing's definitely clear. More and more of these places are popping up all over the place. And that's not a bad thing. That means that there's some serious moves being made, especially in the private industry, to make sure we go to the Moon, Mars and beyond. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for future forecasts with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This shows broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond.